Um, we're going to transition to the message this morning. And what I want to let you know is I was thinking through and praying through uh, the message, and I felt that the Holy Spirit led me to something different this morning than what we are going to be doing. And with that, I am going to have us take a detailed view into the word pericope. There's a few... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's a few people that are looking around and they're wondering what in the world is going on. Um, long story short, in our life group uh, on Wednesday, everybody was teasing me about things and uh, some preaching and all that kind of good stuff. And I shared with them that a unit of discourse in the Bible is a pericope. And everybody said, well, where did you get that from, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went on to Google and I showed them that definition. Being teased, I told them that I would get back to them. So it's because of them, we're going to spend the next 45 minutes detailing out what a pericope, say that with me, pericope is. It's not a pericope, pericope. Can we do that? Okay, we're just going to practice that for 50 minutes. (laughs) I had to get back to you. No, seriously, um, we are in our study on who is this one that they call Jesus. And I hope that you guys have been blessed and encouraged by it. Each week we are looking at two distinct names that are given to Christ. And the encouragement in that is that over the next several weeks, we are going to arrive at Easter Sunday where, prayerfully, we are going to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But in that, we are also going to come essentially armed and equipped, knowing that the one that we worship, the one who is indeed the great I Am, has all of these attributes to him that we can tie together when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. So this morning... Um, If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be taking a look at a couple of passages. We're going to be looking at John 1.14, and then we're going to be looking at Luke 20, verse 17. And to do that, we're going to be discovering, essentially, two aspects or attributes about Jesus. One is the Word, and the other one is cornerstone or capstone. Each of these words are attributed to Christ, and we're going to see the importance of them to help us understand why Jesus is A, named these, but also why Jesus encapsulates both of these names. So to do that, we're starting off this morning again with a very simple question, and that is this. What does it mean to call Jesus the Word and the cornerstone or capstone? The first name that we're going to be looking at is word or logos in Greek. Some of you might remember that. Some of you might recognize it. John starts off his gospel with, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And interesting enough, we're like, who's the word and what's what and what's where? But if we take a moment and we just pause on that sentence, what John is saying is incredibly profound. You just pause, and that sentence alone can be extrapolated to help us understand the importance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What John is essentially doing is he is saying, don't miss the fact that the one who was Jesus, who has come, who has lived, who has taught, who has died, who has been resurrected from the grave, and now, essentially, has ascended into heaven, was God incarnate. 
That's huge, because here's what I want to share with you. You have to remember and recognize that for centuries, God's people were looking to the promise of the Messiah. They're constantly looking out, hearing and knowing, not only through the Old Testament scriptures, but through the prophets, that God is going to bring about a Messiah who is going to deliver them. Now, to give us a little bit more understanding is we have to realize this wasn't just a promise that lasted a week or two. It isn't a promise that lasted for five years. It wasn't even a promise that lasted for the length of our country. This promise had been given, and it was going for thousands of years. And little by little, as the people of God would walk with God, they would go astray, they would get into trouble, God would come, and God would enable them to kind of get back in order. They would get things straight, everything would be fine, and the next thing you know, you think that they would finally get it and finally understand it, but no, they would go awry again. And God in his grace and his mercy and his love would come forward, and he would aid the people, he would bring them back together, and all of the time there is this hint, this utteration, that a Messiah is coming. A Messiah is coming. And interestingly enough, David comes along, and a lot of people begin to think that perhaps David might be the anointed one. But we come to learn that David is not. And remember, in the prophets, they are saying a Messiah will come, and then all of a sudden, those utterances, those messages, they go quiet. Now, God is still present. God is still there. The temple and the tabernacle are still happening, depending upon the time frame. But there's this period where people are not hearing the prophecies of God. And then all of a sudden, as we celebrate on Christmas, along comes the arrival of the Messiah, the promised one. What John is doing is he's essentially saying, don't miss this. That guy that came and said that he was God, that guy that went to the cross and died upon it, that guy that was laid in a tomb and three days later was found to be resurrected, that guy who then has now gone into heaven and said he's coming back, that guy was the word. And you're kind of like, you're like, wait a minute. You think he would say, was God. But here's what you gotta think about. In the beginning was the word. Does that sound familiar? What did God do in the beginning of creation. He spoke the world and the universe into existence. What John is doing is he's tying back Jesus, linking him to the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. That's what John is saying. So the first thing that I want to share with you is the name word or logos in Greek is the ultimate way that God chose to reveal himself to humanity. He did so through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the clearest, most compelling revelation of who God is. 
Because Jesus is one with the Father, he is able to fully communicate God's heart and mind. Don't miss that. If you want to know God, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is about, if you want to know why you need God, you look to Jesus and you will find all that you will need there because Jesus is the ultimate expression of who God is. That is so important to see because through the Old Testament, again, individuals are moving forward, discovering aspects about God. Now, God is with them. God is with them in the temple, in the tabernacle. God demonstrates that he is with them through a variety of means and ways. Some of you that have been going through one-to-one with me, we talked about that. We show how God demonstrates himself to people through visions, through dreams, through angels, through appearing to Moses. But the ultimate manner of how God chooses to express himself is through Jesus Christ. You have to have that foundation. Friends, what I want to tell you lovingly is this. If you want to know who God is, you must know Jesus Christ. That is core and foundational to the Christian belief. The other thing that I want to share with you is this. In a moment, we're going to see in John 1.14, Jesus and, and this aspect of him talking about him being the word and the word becoming flesh. So what I want to share with you is this. We need to remember that John is saying Jesus is the word, but you're going to hear this, this little iteration. Let me, let me just share this with you, and it's going to be so important to understand why John is saying this. In John 1.14, okay, after saying in the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Okay? That's right in the beginning of John, saying Jesus has eternally existed, even though he has been born and died and been resurrected again. We slide down, and John says in 1.14, the Word, meaning Jesus, that's who he's referring to, became flesh. God became a man. Jesus is both fully God and fully man as the incarnate Jesus. That is a doctrine that is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. But watch. Then he says this. He made his dwelling among us. Okay? If someone's listening, if someone is truly keyed into what's going on, they are going to say there is something about what John is saying here that relates to what's going on in the Old Testament. And this is what I want to share with you. As the Word, okay, what John is saying, as the Word, if we want to know who God is, do not look to the temple. Okay? Do not look to the temple. Look to Jesus. And you're kind of going, what? The key here is when John says made his dwelling among us, the word dwelling. So let me share this with you for a minute. When John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us in John 1.14, this would have sparked the ears of all of the Jewish readers. The word dwelling has a similar connotation to the word tent or tabernacle. 
In essence, John is saying God, okay, the word, God, who is Jesus, has become flesh and now tabernacles among us. The Jews of the day would have recognized this statement as a reference to the tent of meeting where God's glory dwelt prior to the building of the temple in Jerusalem. So John is saying God no longer resides in the temple. He resides in Jesus. And later in the scriptures, Acts 2, now in you, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That statement right there is so important because what John is doing and what John is saying is, number one, don't miss the fact that Jesus, who has lived and died and resur been resurrected from the grave and now is ascended into heaven, is God in the flesh. He is the Word. God spoke in existence. Jesus was the one present with the Father, speaking creation into existence. But I'm also telling you that that word that has eternally existed has become flesh and has tabernacled okay, among us. That is so important because what you have to remember and recognize is there's this little interim period of time in between when Jesus comes, lives, and dies and is ascended into heaven before A.D. 70 when the temple, which is still established, even though at Christ's death the veil is torn in two, temple worship is continuing. It is still going on among the Jewish people who do not believe that Christ is the Messiah. And so what John is saying is, don't look there. Don't look to the temple. Because God in the flesh has tabernacled with us. And then as we discover in Acts 2, when we receive the Holy Spirit, he now dwells in you. Now we look at this and we think, well, what's important? We don't do temple worship, etc., etc. But I want to bring this to modern times. How often do we look for other sources, other aspects, other things to sort of add on to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? It's Jesus and a little bit of this. It's Jesus and a little bit of that. Or better yet, it's a whole lot of that and a little bit of Jesus. And so what John is saying is, is don't miss this fact. The Word is God. God has eternally existed, and that is Jesus. And Christ has come to dwell among us. The other thing that I want to share with you is this. Friends, remember back when we were talking in the book of Hebrews about how the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies where God existed was the great high priest, and then we talked and kind of laughed about the fact that you hoped and prayed that that guy had washed behind his ears and he had bells on his hands and on his feet and had a rope tied to him because if he entered into the Holy of Holies in an unclean way, we had a whole Indiana Jones times 10 experience. And they could only do that once a year, and everybody got excited because they thought that they were having their sins forgiven. And what we discovered was this, that really what was going on, it was just a show of pomp and circumstance. Because as Hebrews tells us, what the priest could do was only wash us on an outward way, but internally we still knew that we were dirty in our sin. But then he says, the one who is truly the great high priest, both priest and king, that only Jesus can uniquely hold, 
is Christ, and he is the one on the cross who can wash your sins clean. So now you no longer have to wait for the priest to do this. And number two, it's no longer pomp and circumstance. It is a one and done. Christ has come, he has lived, he has died, he has forgiven you from your sin. And when you place your faith and trust in him, you are, you are his. That's what's happening here. So John is doing everything he can to establish the fact that number one, Christ is the one whom we are to worship, but number two, don't go to the other system. And friends, what I'm going to tell you is this. What temple or tabernacle might you have in your life that you are adding to Christ rather than moving and trusting in Christ alone as the Word? Because the Word, friends, was in the beginning. The temple and the tabernacle was not. The other thing, too, that I want to share with you is this, okay? I've been speaking to it, but I want to make sure that we lay this foundation. As the Word, Jesus has come in the flesh as God, but has eternally existed as God. Please don't miss this. Again, what John is doing here and what other, the, the other gospel writers are doing and what we even see in the epistles is that they are understanding and they know, but they're wrestling and recognizing that we have to get this down. We have to write this under the, the, the movement of the Holy Spirit so that when people read this, when people see and know what we have experienced and we have seen, they will not forget or become confused that the one who stood before us, the one who taught us, the one who went to the cross was not just a good guy, was not just a king gonna rye, was not just a prophet among many. He was God. But more importantly, not only was he was God, what we learned was what? He is the Messiah, the anointed one, who is what? Specifically designed for the task at hand, which will tie into, in a moment, the fact that Jesus is a cornerstone or the capstone. All of this flows together. I, just, it's, it, it, I love how all of these little names of Jesus all begin to tie together to encapsulate and give us a better understanding of who our Savior is. And so the thing that I want to share with you is this. Okay, I've said earlier, remember back in Genesis, okay, the world was created by God who spoke it into existence. I, I, I don't know about you, but like, have you ever kind of watched, uh, you know, some pictures on the Hubble Space Telescope and just kind of watched the universe sort of unfold and things move and turn and, you know, watch nebulas and stars and all that kind of stuff? Can you imagine if you were able to sit there and watch God just, okay, speak creation into existence. I mean, talk about a powerful speech. God speaks the word and all that we know into existence. Now, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the word of God, okay? Halagas atheos was present at the world's beginning. 
Jesus, as an aspect or member of the Trinity, was with the Father as the world was spoken into existence. Now, the reason for this is, as followers of Christ, this is important for us to know. It is important for us to recognize, and it is important for us to hold on to, because many will claim Jesus to be a great moral teacher. You can go and you can talk to people in the Islamic faith. You can go to people and you can talk to them who are Buddhist and who have an inkling of who Jesus is. And they will concede. They will move and they will say, sure, we'll give you that he's a good moral teacher. We'll give you that he did good things. Perhaps, if you move forward, many will claim that Jesus is a great prophet. Many will concede that. Sure, we'll give you that he's a prophet. He was good. He prophesied things. He's one prophet among many. But here's the thing. This is the catch. This is where people come into trouble with it. It is the exclusive claim. It is what separates Christianity from all other religions. And to be honest with you, it is what offends those who do not believe. It is this statement. Only followers of Christ will claim him to be God in the flesh. Friends, that is the foundational aspect of who Christ is. And lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. The moment that we begin to remove that doctrine or soften that doctrine, we begin to remove who Christ truly is. It is foundational to the core of our Christian faith. It is something that we must, in love, continue to profess and continue to defend. And lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is this. It will offend people. Okay? I'm not saying, well, let's go out and offend everybody. But it should offend people. Because what you are doing is you are making an exclusive claim that of all the little G's out there, okay, of all the systems that are out there, of all the ways to travel to Mecca, they are false, and the only way to know God is through our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Word that became flesh. Now, the other thing that I want to tell you is this. It's interesting, too, that John says that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and he uses the word to describe Jesus to tie it back to Genesis but we're going to find another hint to this okay in how John utilizes the word logos what I want to tell you is that as followers of the word okay everybody love Jesus okay just I mean anybody out there just raise your hand if you love Jesus okay okay keep it up Okay, if you love Jesus, let me tell you something. If you love Jesus and you don't love the Bible, you don't love Jesus. Okay, let me look, put your hands up here real quick. If you love Jesus and you don't love the Bible, you do not love Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. Because I hear a lot of people, oh, I love Jesus. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I love Jesus. I hear a lot of people sing about Jesus. I hear a lot of people talk about Jesus. I hear a lot of people... Praise Jesus. But then when they go into the Bible and they begin about and read about who Jesus is, they say, I don't want to do anything with that. 
Let me share this with you in love to show you how if you love Jesus, you love his word, which is the Holy Scriptures. Friends, lovingly, I want to tell you this. As followers of the word, we are called to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We are called. We are not asked. Okay? We are not suggested. We are called to let the word of God dwell. Interesting. Dwell. Remember? Tabernacle. Tabern- it's the same word. It's the same root word tabernacle within us. 50% on Tuesdays and 25% when you get a free order of fries, right? No, what does he then say? Richly. So lovingly, what I want to ask you is this. Number one, if you love Jesus, do you love the word of God? And if you love the word of God, are you allowing it to dwell, tabernacle within you, spend time soaking into you richly? To sum this up, what I want to tell you is this. I find it fascinating that Paul uses a similar word, dwell, okay? It is the same root in Greek. When addressing the church at Colossae in Colossians 3.16, earlier we learned that the word, okay, the word, who is Christ, dwells or tabernacles among us. Here... Okay? In the context of Colossians 3.16, we are being exhorted by Paul to the, the word of, of Christ dwell or tabernacle richly within us. So here's a point to ponder. If you want to know Jesus in a deep, personal, and passionate way, you should study his words in a deep, personal way and passionate way. Let me say that one more time. This time I'm going to say amigos because everybody jokes that I say friends too much. So amigos. (laughs) You got to come to our life group. (laughs) Amigos. Lovingly. Point to ponder. If you want to know Jesus in a deep, personal, and passionate way, you should study his words in a deep, personal, and passionate way. I am not saying you have to go to seminary. I'm not saying that you need to go get a doctorate. But what I am asking you and lovingly telling you is how much time are you spending in his word? Okay? Another thing that I want to encourage you in is you might sit there and you might say, man, I'm I'm just starting to understand what the Bible is, okay? Keep going, keep pursuing. Ask, seek, and knock, and it shall be given to you. Come to me, come to Keith, come to one of the elders. We'll do what we can and the best that we can to explain it. I'm loving you to tell you, I can't explain it all. I will never know the depths of who God is. I will plumb, I will... find, I will study, I will dive, but I will never plumb the full depths of who our God is. But what I will tell you is this, that what I have in the scriptures, what we have in the scriptures, is all that we need to know who our God is, 
and what our relationship with him is without him and what our relationship can be and is with him. We need not look any further. And so friends, I just, I, I, I implore you in love, amigos, to study God's word. Soak it in. Let it tabernacle in you. Let it marinate. Let it transform your heart. Let it convict you. Let it make you feel guilty of your sin. Because friends, when it makes you feel guilty of your sin, right around the corner on the next page or a couple of passages later, you relish the fact that you are forgiven in Christ. You are a new creation. You have been clothed in righteousness. Your inheritance is secure. You are no longer part of the kingdom of darkness, but you are part of the kingdom of light. All because Christ became the word who tabernacled among us. The next thing that I want to share with you, and the second name is cornerstone or capstone. And that one, and, and just pray for me for a minute, okay? Um, it is acrogionios, lethos in Greek, okay? That's the word, cornerstone or capstone. And what I love is how this ties into our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Um, years ago, when I was uh, a student in college, I had an opportunity to go and spend time in Argentina. And in spending time in Argentina, after we did our studies, we had an opportunity to travel around South America. And one of the greatest memories I have is with a couple of good friends, uh, we went over to Cusco in Peru. Uh, we spent time uh, with the people in Peru. And then uh, what we did is we actually ended up um, uh, hiking from Cusco to Machu Picchu uh, through the Andes Mountains. Uh, absolutely one of the, one of the best uh, trips I've had, um, and, and I still visually can remember so many of the treats of that hike. But what was interesting was, as, as we were hiking, what we were learning was this, is that the priests or the spiritual gurus of the, the Incan people would travel the same route that we were traveling. And as they traveled closer to Machu Picchu, which was essentially the Mecca, they would stay at certain stations or some of the other sites along this trail, and they would wait. They would not progress on the trail until they had a, I'm going to just say um, politely, um, a drug-induced uh, spiritual revelation. And if they did, then they would feel that they could proceed to, quote-unquote, the next spot. And for some of them, this traveling took 40 years in order to get to Machu Picchu. And so those priests that were at Machu Picchu were seen to be the echelon of this priestly order. But what was fascinating was this. Uh, when we were hiking, uh, the night before we actually went to Machu Picchu, um, the guide that we were with told us, hey, you know, you guys need to do uh, us a favor. You need to make sure that you get to bed early because we're going to begin hiking at 4 a.m. And... Uh, some of you know I'm not the best at mornings, but back then I'm kind of like, okay, we'll do this and uh, we'll get going. And so we start off at 4 a.m. and we're hiking along the trail. And the whole point of this 
was he knew that he wanted to get us to essentially the entrance point to Machu Picchu at sunrise. And we made it. And, and, and visually, I still, it is one of the most beautiful scenes because here's what's weird. You look at Machu Picchu and you see it up right on top of the mountain. On the trail, you actually descend down into Machu Picchu. And the joy was we got to sit there and watch the sunrise over Machu Picchu and then descend into Machu Picchu before the trains came in with the majority of tourists that brought them in and then they ascended up and it's just crowded with tourists. So for about three hours, we had Machu Picchu essentially, there were maybe two other groups, so there were maybe 20 of us in total to ourselves. And we would go through and the guide was able to tell us about Machu Picchu. What was interesting was the stonework of Machu Picchu. It was so fascinating to watch how these individuals were masters of the stonework that were there. And what he began to explain to us was the geometric and architectural significance of a cornerstone or a capstone. The absolute, utter importance of that block being perfectly fit and perfectly shaped for the rest of the building because the entire integrity of the building or the integrity of the arch rested on the shape, the integrity, and the structure of the cornerstone of the capstone. Which leads me to why Jesus is our cornerstone or our capstone. Again, um, hard name in Greek, agrikoionios, lithos in Greek. The cornerstone or the capstone. And to begin, I want to just share with you, we're going to slide over to Luke uh, chapter 20. We're going to look at uh, 17, and Jesus is essentially giving a parable. And he says just these words, right? He says, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? Okay, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. If you're there and you hear these words and you have any understanding of what's going on and what's transpiring here, okay, this is like shock and awe. Because what's going on here is, is Jesus is using a parable to demonstrate to the Pharisees and Sadducees that those of you who think that you are religious, those of you that think you have it all together, those of you that think you know who God is, and are building your magnificent temple, you are missing the absolute cornerstone or capstone. Hence, your building, your system, your way of going about things is defunct and defiled and its structural integrity is not intact because you have rejected the cornerstone or the capstone. Who is me? Friends, what I want to ask you lovingly is this. Is Jesus the cornerstone or the capstone in your life? The thing that I want to show you is this. As a cornerstone or a capstone, Jesus is perfectly fitted to the task at hand. I love how they use this and how he speaks to being the cornerstone or the capstone. Okay? 
What I want to share with you is this. A cornerstone or a capstone was an extremely important stone that held two rows of stone together on a corner, okay? Or one uh, that stabilized the structural foundation or one that formed the keystone over an arch, okay? Several of you might go, you might look at some historical buildings. A lot of times what you will see, generally speaking, on the right side of the building is a stone that is sort of etched out or marked, and then you see the date. That's when the building was built. That is a cornerstone or a capstone. And anyone who is in architectural studies, anyone who studies um, anything about uh, structural engineering or anything like that, that stone is absolutely essential in how it fits and how it forms. And if that stone is off, if that stone is warped, if that stone is cracked, if that stone is not fit to the task, the entire structural integrity of the building is off. The other thing too, if you look at an arch, you see that keystone in the front, okay? How many of you have ever been to uh, the Science Center in Des Moines? Anybody been there? How many of you have ever tried to build the arch, right? How many of you recognize that like the, that, that one right in the middle is the one that makes everything fit, and if it doesn't fit, everything falls? That's because the entire integrity of that arch rests on the keystone. Architecturally speaking, it had to be perfectly fitted for the task, strong and well-shaped. A flawed or poorly cut stone would severely compromise the building's integrity. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm the cornerstone or I'm the capstone. I am the stone upon which you will build the church. And friends, what I want to tell you is this. Jesus is perfectly fitted for the task to go to the cross and die upon it because he is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who has the power to forgive sins. He is the one who can rise from the grave. He is the one who has risen from the grave. He is the one who has gone into the kingdom. And he is the one who will come again as the victorious king. He is the cornerstone or the capstone. And lovingly what I'm going to tell you is this. Praise God that we have him as our cornerstone and capstone because as the leader of this church and the church, he is the one who holds the structural integrity of his church which is promised that the gates of hell will not overcome. Maintain the integrity of the church until Christ comes to claim us as his own. The next thing that I want to share with you is this. As the cornerstone of the capstone, Jesus' task, okay, because a cornerstone or a capstone, its task is to hold the building together. It is to strengthen it. It is to keep it in line. It is to lay the foundation. The task of that cornerstone or stack, uh, uh, um, capstone is to save us from our sin and build his church. Friends, the main reason Jesus comes is to save us from our sin, and I don't want to belittle that at all. The main reason Jesus dies on the cross is to save us from our sin. But friend, if the only reason Jesus comes is to save us from our sin, when we place our faith and, try, try, uh, faith and trust in him, why don't we get to go to heaven immediately with him? Because we become part of Christ and part of that cornerstone or capstone. And the church has been designated to us to be the cornerstone or capstone 
for Christ in a broken and dark world. And so lovingly, what I want to share with you is this. When Jesus speaks the words, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone in Luke 2017. He is referring back to Psalm 118.22. Here Jesus is pointing to his rejection by the Jewish nation and its leaders. However, despite the rejection, through his death and his resurrection, Jesus would become the cornerstone or capstone upon which the entire church would be built. Friends, this is not my church. Please do not say this is Pastor Trevor's church. I pastor this church for the leader who is Jesus. Okay? Lovingly, I get so tired of hearing people say, oh, that's that pastor's church. Oh, that's that pastor's church. I pastor this church, but this church, this church is Jesus. It is his, and he is the one whom we work for. However, despite that rejection through his death and resurrection, Jesus would become a cornerstone or capstone upon which the entire church would be built. Yet, now watch this, yet as the cornerstone or capstone, okay? Think about this. There is only one, there is only one who is perfectly fitted for that task. Lovingly, what I'm sharing with you is as we look at these other names, imagine this stone, right? And it's being chiseled away and it's being molded and shaped by these other names to fit and slide in perfectly to the integrity of the church, the building. There is only one stone. And as we look and as we see, we recognize as we search these other stones that that perfect capstone is Jesus Christ. So here's a point to ponder. Amigos. Okay? If Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone of the church, number one, do you trust that he is perfectly fitted to forgive you of your sins? Just stop there for a minute. Lovingly, I, I, some of you might be, be here this morning and you might say, man, I, I just, you just don't know my life. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm struggling with. You don't know what I have. You don't know how I struggle with God. Lovingly, I'm going to tell you that the only one who is perfectly fitted for the task to forgive you of your sins is Jesus Christ. None of us are here with a different capstone. It is all because of Jesus. Number two, do you trust, do you trust that he is perfectly fitted to hold his church together? Friends, as we travel down the world, as we look, as Keith has prayed, we look around the world and man, you, you go five minutes into the news and it's just a big dose of depression. And we wonder and we worry and we think and we say, where is God? What's going to happen? Where are things going to go? What I'm going to tell you is this. When the building shakes, when the earthquakes happens, you look to that capstone and you say, that is the stone upon which this entire building is built and I trust that it is perfectly fitted for the task and it will not fall. And I and we, through the mercy and the grace of God, get to join in with that building 
because it is the capstone upon which we trust. And lastly, friends, what I want to ask you is this. Will you allow him to become the cornerstone or the capstone of your life? When people look at you, when they look at who you are, when they look at what you do, and go and do, and go and be, and be the best at whatever it is that God has called you to be, but lovingly, I ask you, will they turn to you and say, man, that guy was an amazing pastor. Man, that guy had his doctorate. Man, that guy built a church. Man, that guy was there for 20 years. Or would they say, man, that guy loved Jesus. That's all I want. That's all I care about. I pray when God takes me prayerfully again at 102, skiing down the Hobacks. There goes the skiing reference for those of you that are in the life group. that what is said of me, positive, negative, whatever it might be, that everybody will say the one thing we cannot deny is that guy loved Jesus. That's all I want on my resume. That's all I want on my resume. I want people to look and say that is the cornerstone and the capstone of his life. And so this morning, we've looked at two passages, and man, okay, I'm, yep. Um, what does it mean to call Jesus the Word? And what does it mean to call Jesus the cornerstone and the capstone of our life? And so, as the take-home truth, kind of this, as the Word, and the cornerstone or capstone, may we let Jesus, may we let Jesus and His Word, little, okay, meaning the Scripture, but it is big because it is the Scripture, I'm just did that to where it's Jesus is the word, but the scriptures too. Dwell or tabernacle richly okay, in us by trusting, watch how this works, by trusting the cornerstone. By trusting the cornerstone as we make him the capstone of our life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and I just thank you so much for everybody that's here. I thank you for the opportunity to minister for them on behalf of your name. And Father, we're just so grateful uh, for our Savior Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And Father, I pray that as we continue to discover these attributes, these names of Jesus, that it would just, it would just uh, wrap our, our minds and our hearts more deeply into a passionate relationship with you. Father, thank you that you are patient. Thank you that are, you are slow to anger abounding in love, mercy, and grace. Thank you that you have revealed yourself fully to us through the scriptures, through your word, because you are the word. And Father, thank you that you are the cornerstone and the capstone of, quote unquote, this building, which isn't brick and mortar, it's the body. And so in that, Father, may we continue to put you as the cornerstone or capstone of our life, bringing glory and honor to your name. We thank you, we love you, we pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.